Dr. Scott Lyons, and you're watching or listening to The Gently Used Human. Today, we are asking the big questions that have been on everyone's mind. Can you be a mindful asshole? What is science? What is mindfulness? And more importantly, how do you actually get out of the hamster wheel of suffering? Well, the truth is, I don't know. That's why I asked my dear friend, Dr. Sarah King, to join us today to shed light on it all. If you like to pee your pants laughing and then want to know the science behind that, this is the episode for you. Dr. Sarah King is a mother, neuroscientist, politician, and learning scientist, education philosopher, social entrepreneur, public speaker, and certified yoga and mindfulness meditation instructor. She is also the co-director of Mobius, a home for the development of liberatory technology and the founder of MindHeart Collective, a contemplative tech company that she founded to develop AI-integrated platforms, applications, and courses grounded in neuroscience. In 2021, she was named One to Watch by Mindful Magazine, as well as she made the November cover of Yoga Journal Magazine as a game changer for her work bridging neuroscience, social justice, and contemplative practices. In 2022, she was also named one of the 10 most powerful women in mindfulness by Mindful Magazine. Dr. King, welcome to the show. Thank you for the dance. Thanks for having me, babe. Absolutely. So <laughs> let's get started. I'm bringing the weird. I'm going to regret inviting like full you. Full throttle. I? Full throttle. I weird. full throttle regret it already. <laughs> so let's get started with a very basic question for you, Dr. Sarah King. Is science real? <laughs> Um, you know, I get asked this a lot because I'm best friends with Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny. Um, you know, we hang out and do sake bombs all the time. And so, you know, generally when we get together, we talk about the same question and they tell me, you know, no one seems to think that we're real. This is a problem. You know, this is like a marketing and PR issue. And so I'm really glad that this is coming up right now because I can, you know, it just like brings real emotion to my heart. Real emotion. Real As emotion. someone who's dedicated the last 20 years of their life to science, I'm just curious. Mm. Is science just a compilation of mansplains? <laughs> um, <clears throat> my daughter has this expression um, that I really love. She's 15 years old. And she likes to say, don't mansplain my plantain, <laughs> which I, <laughs> which Does we have she... no idea what that actually means, but it rhymes. Um, and so it's, oh, it rhymes. it's, it's lovely. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I would say for just like maybe a moment of um, seriousness that science is this extraordinarily validated process of inquiry and investigation into that which is real. And we really need that because we need things like our cars to turn on and electricity and vaccines and all other sorts of lovely things that like make the world run and possible. And so, you know, Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny told me to drop that mic on the show. (laughs) 
So as, as we're getting into this uh, theme today around science and mindfulness, which is, is why we began with that really important question. Speaking of science, actually, I, I was hoping we could talk a little bit about the science of 23andMe, like genetics for a moment. Ooh. And okay. yeah, All right. I mean, I just thrown it out there. I know <laughs> that we each kind of have had an interesting experience with 23andMe yeah. of late. Yes. And I, I um, before we, we unpack the science of other things, uh, why don't we talk about the science of our families <laughs> that Ooh. we discovered on 23andMe? Do, would you be open to starting, to sharing your recent encounter? Um, oh, gosh, yeah. That is um, quite the pivot. So it actually <laughs> began my discovery of my family. I had never met my father. And I actually wasn't even sure if the name that was on my birth certificate was real, you know, because generally when a baby is born, you have to put someone down on there. So I was kind of convinced that maybe the name that was on my birth certificate was just like some guy that my mom ran into in a coffee shop and was like, that name will do. So... (laughs) You know, for most of my life, and it's it's very interesting for me to be like sharing about this in this space because yeah. this is definitely like details of my life that I don't get to share. But for most of my life, I was just distinctly not interested mm. in knowing who he was. And then as I began following the uh, research in epigenetics and I was just like really trying to uncover personally, you know, like how does intergenerational trauma show up in my life um, in terms of my mental health and my physical health. And then I had a few doctors ask me, you know, what about your dad's side of your family? Like, are these diseases, have they like presented? And, And I had no idea. I was like, okay, well, let me take a peek into this. And it was actually on, um, ancestry.com. Ancestry. Ancestry Ancestry.com. Yeah. That I was digging around and one day, um, there was like a, you know, these little green leaves that pop up and it's like, you have a notification, like something fascinating for you to look at. And at first when I looked, it said that they had discovered a first cousin of mine, which I thought, oh, I don't know if that's so interesting. But then the more that I looked at the name and I looked at the percentage of genes that we shared, I was like, wait, this person shares 25% of my genetics. And I was like, carry the two, add a one, subtract five, and you know, put the hypotenuse together and the right angles. And I was like, wait a minute. This is I was like, hang on a minute. And then I thought, you know, let me just be like wild and crazy and message this yeah. person and say, yeah. do you perchance know is the name Henry Ross at all familiar to you? And yeah. it turned out that this person was my half-sister. They responded immediately. Um, And then from there, it was just like this whole journey of uncovering that, you know, I possibly have, um, I don't know, up to 10 other half-siblings who are also in the world. Um, I can hear my voice getting a little bit fluttery when I'm saying this because it's Mm. like, I still have only um, met one of them, had conversations with two of them by now. um, And the rest are relatively um, unknown to me. But it is to say that for me to go through my entire life thinking that I was one of 
three siblings. Mm -hmm. And now to know and have uncovered that, no, actually my family is much bigger. And, and really to be a human being who walked around in the world feeling like I didn't have a father. Mm -hmm. That just wasn't a reality for me. And to now know exactly who he is and to have seen photos of him for the first time and to be able to like look at his face, even though he's passed away. So I'm, I'm not going to get to meet him in this lifetime, but just to be able to like see my face in his face is huge. Um, and for science to have directly contributed to this like revolution in, in wholeness really inside of my own subjective experience is, is really huge. So, um, mm. fuck yeah, science. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so when you first told me, I was like, the fact that you are a scientist, that you've studied, that you are one of the premier voices in understanding the science of transgenerational trauma. Mm. And, and, and to, to be on this quest of your own and to discover, you know, not only the, who your dad is, but the, the other elements of your life and, and how that um, lineage, how that that generation of experience is trickling down to see it in, you know, or to hear it in other siblings is is yeah. epic. I actually, <clears throat> yeah. one other story that I'd like to share with you is yeah. that I was pretty effectively orphaned at the age of 13, 14. And at that yeah. time, um, I moved to Los Angeles to be with my extended family. And your girl, Dr. King, was a little bit, um, you know, a scoff law. And so I was like skipping school. Oh, no, King Drew. No! Still ended up a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I was skipping school on occasion to go to like downtown LA to the garment district. But one of the primary places that I would go to all of the time with like an intuitive knowing, but not really like fully knowing why was the Venice canals. Yeah. And I would go just sort of like walking around and, you know, that area is like absolutely gorgeous, just sort of like roaming and enjoying and like feeling this presence in my life that I really needed. And it wasn't until I discovered who my father was a few months ago that um, my half sisters told me that he actually lived there. Oh, wow. On the Venice canals. So there was something, I think, maybe this isn't like fully scientific, we could say, but like something intuitively, intergenerationally was drawing me to where he was. And I find that fact like relentlessly fascinating. Mm. I mean, I, I can only imagine where you will unlock the science of the magnetism of, of how we are uh, yes. <laughs> steered towards our, you know, our blood, like mm. the resonance of our blood, mm. the resonance of our genes. I'd like to think so. I see a Nobel Peace Prize in that research. Yes, it's, yes, I'll be doing that in my spare time. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that story is um, just almost as interesting as mine uh, on 23andMe. Actually, it's a much better story. But uh, I, recent, I, I recently did 23andMe, and I got a phone call, a very angry phone call from a parent, one of my parents, saying, um, I'm really upset. I just, I just got a match with you on 23andMe. 
To which I, you know, like uh, that was funny enough. Okay. But the, the, the next line was, we only share 49.7% relation or like, you know, genetic material. Yeah. And I was yeah. like, yeah, <laughs> they were, were quite unsettled that they didn't have 50% or more. Oh, <laughs> it was, like it was competitive like a competition of genetic material. Okay. Well, I'm sure that like with a level like clever doctoring, you could just sort of, you know, like zhuzh up. I did. I made, I made a different website. I was like, there's always a little bit of extra stuff floating around. <laughs> yeah. And, <you> know. <laughs> did you tell them that like you are um, 0.3% uh, alien uh, in heritage? Like you're, that's pretty much like your Plutonian background coming through. So they yeah, can like yeah. calm down. Just I, like, I tried that. Calm down. Yeah. <laughs> that, uh, that one didn't go as well as, you know, making some gobbledygook up from, uh, you know, my science arse. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> like, right. Yes. There's, it's, it's never even. And, and there's always <laughs> like, Eight to ten percent air. Yes, Uh, oxygen, carbon, um, iron bubbles floating through the system. Um, It's science. Mercury. Mercury. (laughs) Xenon. (laughs) You know, we both have a a background in science and um, the joys of finagling science for one's benefit Mm. should not be discounted. Right. Yeah. Especially if they are for financial gain um, and oh. completely unethical, right? That's, oh, that's what we're wow. taught to do, right? As scientists, <laughs> is, <laughs> is cheat the system for <laughs> unethical financial. Mm. Mm. Uh, wait. Oh, well, no. That take, might take bring that us part down a out. Hole. No, take, take that part out of the. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're going to leave that in. Oh, okay. Oof. <laughs> <laughs> We've been discovered. <laughs> So I want to talk about the science of mindfulness because that's your jam. Okay, yeah. I want to start with another basic question. Yeah. Can I practice mindfulness and still be an asshole? Ooh, wow. Okay, so you're referring to like an entire canon of peer-reviewed research that is like newly surging onto the scene. Um, at Johns Hopkins, they have an entire asshole lab where they're bringing in the world's top mindfulness experts to like really discover, you know, what is it that is making people clench up so tightly around their assholishness in the midst of reaching the highest levels of enlightenment and samadhi? You know, I want to say this on maybe a little bit more of a of a serious note. Uh oh, I know. <laughs> I think. It is entirely possible to engage in any kind of contemplative or embodied practice with the intention that any of the benefits only be for you. Mm, go on. The very like self-centered orientation around like, I want to feel better. I want to reduce my stress. I want to be more calm. I, 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 right? Like without, like Mm -hmm. totally disenfranchised from the true ethical and dare I say, spiritual roots of many of these practices, which is to fundamentally attune your nervous system towards interdependence. Mm. Can you define interdependence, which 
often is confused for independence. Independence, I would say, is this feeling that you can get in the presence of another person or people Mm -hmm. that they are you, that there isn't this false sense of separation, Mm -hmm. that we all have this capacity to mirror one another, to empathize with one another, to feel deep compassion for one another and the multiplicity of our experiences and that we can actually lean into this like embodied and felt state of us, of we. Mm. In spite of the fact that we are all having very differentiated experiences, it's a little bit of a paradox, I think, of being human is like, oh, I'm having this experience of being an individual self and I'm a part of a collective, right? I have my individual consciousness. I'm a part of collective consciousness. And so we can be engaging in the practice of mindfulness in a way that is actually about um, developing delusion Mm -hmm. and the delusion being that we are better than, higher than, more spiritual than, more evolved than, apart from others who Mm -hmm. are not necessarily engaged in these practices. And to me, um, quite frankly, I think that there can be a shadow side or a lot of escapism that can happen with any spiritual practice. Mm. And so that is something that probably definitely doesn't get like marketed. Oh my God, we should market it. Merch, more merch. Merch, merch, merch. <laughs> um, delusion, delusion, merch, merch. Mindful um, bypassing, toxic mindfulness. <laughs> right, right, right. Number one on Amazon bestselling book, um, how to meditate your way to greater states of assholishness. I've done it. You've done it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, get on the Oprah book list and all those things. But I think this is an extremely important conversation to have because especially in more yeah. uh, individualistic cultures, I think that mindfulness practices are being taught and sold for these purposes of like self benefit yeah. rather than societal and collective healing. Mm, mm, I'm snapping quietly. Snap yeah. Snap, snap. To go back to the topic of like that, that mindfulness, which has become like mic mindfulness. It, it's so prevalent. It's everywhere. It's like, mm-hmm. want to heal your corporate company? Want to heal your family? Want to heal your relationship with your dog? Mindfulness. Yeah. It's like, I don't actually yeah. know it. I don't know exactly. what mindfulness is anymore, um, but we'll talk about what it is. And, but this idea of like mindful hiding or hiding in the mindfulness. When I was oof, in my late 20s, hit absolute rock bottom. I had already, you know, done many years of uh, yoga practice and and meditation and um, was talking to my therapist at the time and my life had fallen apart. And I was like, I don't understand why I can't hold all of this. I practice yoga. I do mindfulness. I do uh, meditation. And she pauses and she goes, ah, mindfulness, meditation, and yoga. What a beautiful place to hide. Mm, damn, Gina. Is that what you said? Is that what you Her said? Name was Gina. How did you know? <laughs> <laughs> it was Dr. Gina. It was Dr. Gina. Yeah, it radically shook my entire being. Mm. Because I also started to recognize all the other places I was I was hiding in. Mm. 
I could override my own emotions by like trying to rise above it. I could say, there's no anger here. There's no sadness here. I'm just at breath. Right. Yeah. That escapism that I was that talking escapism. about. Yeah, and exactly. I want to get like a little bit like, hmm, dare I say like deep-ish on us. Oh. Just in going back to this point about the self, I think that when we are engaging in any kind of, whether it's mindfulness, yoga, tai chi, whatever it is, going back to intention, the intention of the practice in our minds is around somehow perfecting this construct of the self. Mm. Yeah. The more that we are like geared and oriented in that direction is, I think, the deeper the levels of dissatisfaction and cognitive dissonance and suffering that we are going to encounter because the nature of being in a body, the nature of having a self is the experience of impermanence. And mm -hmm. so it's like, we're always trying to like grasp and like hook on to some phenomena inside of our bodies. That's going to be like, yes, now this is me. Oh, oh, this is it. Oh, I have arrived at this like destination yeah. of a fixed self. Yeah which doesn't actually exist. One of the things that I have found to be so helpful about my mindfulness practice is like, for instance, whenever I'm getting ready to go on stage and do some big public speaking engagement, right? Mm -hmm. That is the moment when, um, you know, my threat response, my trauma response is coming online inside of my body. It's like fight or flight. Oh my gosh. You know, all the thoughts, all the ego is coming up to try to protect me. Everybody's going to hate what you have to say. Oh my goodness. Like you have to say the right thing. Oh, you got to get it right. Oh, you got to get out of there. Like run for the door, you know? And then when I notice those thoughts coming up in my mind, what I do is I ground my breath in my body and I remind myself that it actually isn't about me. It's about me. <laughs> it's about Dr. Scott. <laughs> No, just like in the sense of like the ways in which I have been able to um, connect with emptiness and non-self in my practice has created like a real spaciousness so that I can witness my ego arising and know that who I am is actually not my ego. So I can thank my ego. I can be like, thank you so much for wanting to protect me in this moment. And I'm going to remain fully in my body in this present moment and speak from that place rather than from the place of the ego. And it's from a place that is informed by my intention that how I am showing up isn't to serve myself. It's to be in relationship and community with others, which is really that like interdependence that we were talking about before. I want to take a moment to give a loud shout out to The Embody Lab, which is ugh, one of the most incredible resources for body-based and somatic therapies. This show is all about healing, and The Embody Lab does exactly that. Whether you're on your own journey of transformation and discovery, or enhancing your skill sets in your career as like a coach or a therapist, a body worker, or really any career where you are supporting other gently used humans, 
The Embody Lab is your place for deep, inspiring, and impactful workshops, certificates, masterclasses, and an incredible community of like-minded folks. I love the Embody Lab, and so do so many other people that call it a platform to come home to over and over again. The Embody Lab is giving my listeners an exclusive offer, a one-time 10% off code to enhance your embodied well-being. All you have to do is go to theembodylab.com and use the code GENTLYUSE10 at checkout. Like this old school concept of homeostasis, yeah. a, a balance as a set point, like this is where your oxygen level has to be at and mm-hmm. your glucose levels and da, 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 da. And right. like this is homeostasis as opposed to here's a whole window. Here's a whole range of where you fluctuate within that is optimal well-being and health. And that's homeostasis. And the the ability to like ride it, surf it like a wave and be in different states for different like circumstances is Uh actually true uh, balance as opposed to like, I'm always calm. I'm always on point. Which is actually kind of like, it's a psychopathic expectation to lay on anyone that you just be like super calm and okay with everything at all times, you know, kind of like there's a SpongeBob episode that's about that actually where SpongeBob, all of the like, you know, like craters in his body like disappears and he becomes like completely smooth and he talks like this and he's basically psycho SpongeBob. I love that episode. But I also love what it is that you're bringing up because I think that there is this really harmful narrative in the wellness industry in particular of which I would say that like now, you know, like mindfulness is definitely a part. And in some ways, the ways that the popular media picks up on the science of mindfulness, they only pick up on the super positive benefits, right? Like, oh, increasing your compassion and decreasing aggression and oh, better sleep. And you're going to increase your telomeres and you're going to become an ageless vampire and like all these things. And so everybody's like, I want that, you know, like fuck Botox, I'm mindfulness. Give me the mindfulness. (laughs) Yeah, totally. But the thing is, is like for me, where my area of expertise is growing in is in healing most broadly. Hmm. And when people ask me, Dr. King, what is healing about? Part of what I like to talk about is that healing is not just about tapping into feelings that we consider to be positive, right? Like definitely when we're able to tap into joy and being in the present and compassion and loving kindness and gratitude and forgiveness and all of these things are necessary components of healing. But I also really believe that it is during those times when we are catastrophizing, when we are panicking, when we are enraged, when we are like fetal position on the ground, depressed, oh, in agony, right? During those moments, when we're able to recognize those two as impermanent, when we're able to have the presence of mind of being like, whew, this is so uncomfortable. This sucks right now. And what I'm experiencing isn't who I am. Mm. It's a passing phenomenon, right? And so 
then to be able to cultivate a toolkit around, okay, who do I need to call? Who do I need to talk to? Who do I reach out to in my community? Like, what are my practices of being able to actually like stay with this pain, not bypass it, stay with this pain and this discomfort for the lessons that they have to teach me, which, you know, I, I want to recognize um, is oftentimes easier said than done. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but I really feel like cultivating this kind of compassionate resilience is really key to the journey of healing so that we're not just always like chasing the euphoria and chasing what looks good, especially for the gram, right? Like that's not like all of these like blissed out crow yoga poses, you know, with like a freaking mindful soft drink. Like, I don't know what that shit is, but it's definitely like not a path to the end of suffering. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I do know what you're saying. And one of the big game changers for me was relanguaging. Mm. So like even saying I am sad, which is a I statement. It's like an identity around the emotion to there's sadness that's present in me. Yeah. Or there's sadness that's present with me. However I want to say it, Mm -hmm. but the change of language where I stop identifying as the feeling, identifying as the current transient state. Yeah. Yeah. so powerful. Mm, mm. And also a practice in and of itself, this relanguaging, because I think that like everything in our society and our culture really passes down very specific ego identified language. And, you know, I, I think I can be really like frank and honest with you, my friend. Mm -hmm. That there was a very long period of time in my life when I genuinely thought that the uniqueness of my suffering was what was like the greatest, how do I even put this? It was like so much of my self-worth and my self-value was deeply attached to my story of suffering. It's like, I have suffered way more than other people in these ways. And this suffering gives me currency. It gives me clout. It gives me a point of connection and what I did not know uh, because, you know, the research in trauma, gosh, I really don't think it was still in its infancy. Um, you know, when I was a uh, teenager, which was just a, a few years ago, um, <laughs> I'm 16 now, if you can't tell. Um, Dr. King at 16. <laughs> Impressive. Yeah, know. Do you know Dr. Doogie Hauser? Yes, uh, we we were roommates and uh, we had a fling, but um, now he is gay and loving it. So, hurrah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. Um, But what I was going to say is that I I was not aware that so much of the the basis and the foundation of many of my relationships was trauma bonding. So where that became really problematic in my life was when I would engage in healing practices and realize that I was actually shifting to a different relationship with that trauma, then it meant, oh no, but if I let this narrative go, if I let this over-identification with this particular experience of suffering go, will I lose out on all these relationships? And that produced a lot of tension inside of me Mm. to navigate, Mm. you know, because I just really didn't, know the difference between 
what relationships look like when we are bonding on the basis of who we are in this present moment, rather than on the basis of these really intense stories of trauma, which are real, but also are not happening right now. Yeah. And the science of that is actually very complex. Mm-hmm. So if mm-hmm. I could mansplain yes. the science of it to you for just a moment. Mansplain the plantain. Ooh, I'm excited. Ooh, it rhymes. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's this interesting research that came out of Australia that looked at two groups. And one group had to put their hands in freezing ice cold water that was painful. And oh, the, yeah. you know the study. Yeah. And then the other group yeah. had tepid water. And the, the group that put their hand in ice cold water and it burned bonded more quickly and more effectively that they were able to complete tasks so much better and so much more collectively than the other group. Like a significant difference. Mm-hmm. And so this idea of like, it is, it is in our nature where trauma becomes the bonding agent. And so it's so easy that we can fall in that pattern to where trauma becomes the social glue. Yes, honey. I mean, we can just look all around us in any given direction societally and see how it is that that is playing out in real time. And I don't want to vilify that because I do think that because our trauma response individually and collectively has literally been built into our evolutionary psychology for tens and thousands of years, right? It's like, this is actually the body's intelligence at work, but we really have to also be able to ground in the wisdom that we are not just our trauma. Yeah that there is so much more complexity to and nuance to who we are. And I forget who it was that was saying this to me earlier today. Like somebody was me. saying to me that, um, oh yes, it was definitely you because you're the voice inside of my head, the angel and the devil, <laughs> that play is one of the first signs that the bondage of trauma is being broken. Yeah. And I thought to myself, Ooh. oof. That is deep wisdom because there was a really long time, a really long period for me in my life where I was like very serious. I was like a serious scholar. I was very serious about politics. I was like, I just have to be like, and <laughs> and that caused um, quite a great deal of constipation. And I can thank Metamucil for helping me to work that out. Uh, but no, I <laughs> today's podcast is brought to you by Metamucil. <laughs> It's like a clever little bit of merch, 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 <laughs> merch. merch. <laughs> <laughs> no, but like, seriously, I, I think that as I get older, I'm actually having these very real epiphanies about how the seriousness of life, the trauma that is unfolding for us mm-hmm. on a local level, on a national level, on a global level, right? You want to talk about like the trauma of trying to confront climate change, like, holy shit. Yeah. Just as like one thing that we can bring up, right? Like that is a lot for the nervous system to hold. And so for me, like engaging in activities that bring out play and awe and curiosity and just like no fucks given, like, do you know what I mean? Just like total freedom of expression and movement 
have become essential to my spiritual practice because otherwise I can get real calcified. I can get real rigid. I can get real serious and then just sort of like miss out on the gift of like spontaneity and, you know, feelings of liberation that can emerge when we are willing to say like, yes, here are these like painful, traumatic suffering inducing things happening in life and Mm -hmm. they are not the entirety of me they are not the whole of my identity that's beautiful it's empowering as fuck it's empowering as fuck yeah and going to curiosity it's like i i think we might forget my backgrounds in neurodevelopmental therapies i worked with babies for a long time but that is how i met you uh, you're my baby. Yes, I have such fun <laughs> memories of you changing my diaper, uh, Doctor Lyons. So curiosity is the engine of development. You know, we might think, oh, a baby's now crawling and a baby's now standing, but it is their curiosity and the exploration that brings them into falling, that brings them into these movements that form into our patterns of action. Yeah. So. Yeah. How I get off the floor is not just like it's not just wired. It's the wiring plus the curiosity to explore the environment. Right. Yeah. And so truly curiosity forms our developmental movements, which has significant impact on our brain development. Absolutely. Absolutely. There is so much wisdom in what you're saying right now, because you know, I mean, for so many reasons, because you're an Einsteinian genius, but Cue the blowing smoke up your ass machine. Uh, (laughs) Cue the Doogie Hauser lookalike. I feel like there's this conversation that has been happening very regularly about, oh my gosh, this intractable divisiveness in our nation. And what are we going to do about it? And it's only getting worse. And it's tearing the seams of, you know, democracy to like smithereens. And I hear that and I think to myself regularly all the time, well, how many people are rendered unable because of their cultural conditioning, because of white supremacy, because of patriarchy, because of heteronormativity, because of this capitalist structure that we live in? I'm just going to go on ahead and go there. How many people have been rendered incapable also because of the algorithms that we are so constantly immersed in that are just basically like echo chambers of just like all this like fucked up ego shit in our minds, right? They're rendered incapable of being curious about the other, other people from other racial backgrounds, other religious experiences, other gender identities. Like they, they, like we have wholesale groups of people who are like, What's that? Transgender humans, those don't exist. They're not real. Their experiences, their needs, their beliefs, their like desires, their no, I'm just going to like cut, I'm going to excise the possibility of this human experience out of my consciousness to the point where I will be okay with legislation that is actively preventing these humans from living a full life because I simply can't believe, I can't even allow, I don't have the capacity to be curious, even though it may not be my experience being transgender, right? They don't even have the capacity to like allow that as a human experience to unfold in their consciousness. And then to 
connect through this feeling of interdependence that we've been talking about, right? To connect to compassion and loving kindness and being like, whoa, okay, not my experience, but still a piece of me. Therefore, what do I need to do to take care of this person, this group, and this community to make sure that whatever their well-being needs are, are being met? You know what I'm saying? I do. Like, yeah. Oof. Curiosity, homie. Curiosity. Curiosity is the key. Get fucking curious. Heal the world. Yeah. Heal the world. Get curious. <laughs> I, you know, I think that's harder to sell. And it's and it's interesting because um, I do this practice in some of my classes where we, it's a game, but it, mm. I do two practices of curiosity. The first one is I'm curious about. And, and we just go back and forth until we're actually curious about something. Like, I'm curious about your uh, nose ring. Okay. And, and, okay. and, like, and I have the other person raise their hand. Like, you would raise their hand if you actually felt that, that resonance of curiosity in me. And then the other person's like, I'm curious about Scott's clit ring. Oh, yes. And I'm <laughs> curious about <laughs> why the hell you just brought up my clit it was ring. discovered. <laughs> Yeah. So it's like going back and forth until it's like we're in this generative state of curiosity and we're in yeah. the embodied experience of it. And there's like a freshness in the room. Yes. That's the way I would explain it. It's like a freshness, a hunger for discovery that just Liveness. is intrinsic. It's lively. Yeah. 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 And there's a, another practice um, I do. I don't want to give all my practices away because. Mm, right. Trademarks. <laughs> I've actually done this one uh, in some of consulting work in corporate companies where we do a practice called the unnecessary. So I give you the objective. You have to get from this side of the room to the other side of the room in the most unnecessary, unpredictable way possible. And the moment you start to plan it out, you have to do something else. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you have 15 minutes. Very improv. Very improv. Very theater kids 101. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm, and yeah. it is kind of remarkable about how that shift of re-entering curiosity mm-hmm. totally changes the ecosystem. Yes. I mean, and we know from research on curiosity, you learn better, you learn faster, and you remember more in a state of curiosity. Absolutely. Which is another one. You know, it's so interesting how many parallels this conversation has to the one that I was just having earlier with um, two of my closest friends and colleagues, because I just got back from um, a few weeks in Japan. I saw that. And they were like, oh my gosh, like, tell us about it. Like, you know, and, and obviously like, it's so hard to encapsulate in, in words when you are traveling abroad, you know, to like another person. But one of the things that definitely came up was I am just like marveling at how much more myself I feel Mm. from having had this extraordinary opportunity to step into a cultural, social, economic, linguistic environment that is so wildly different from my own. And one might think, oh, that could produce a state of disorientation, you know, Mm. like were you were you getting lost? Could you speak to people? Like, how were you even able to navigate? But it really, there was so much tremendous benefit to the practice of showing up in that space with my full on childhood curiosity, awe, 
play. I was just sort of like fully willing for anything to unfold. Mm. And I would say another ingredient of what made that experience so transformative beyond Japan just being like literally the most amazing place on earth besides Iceland. (laughs) Today's show brought to you by Iceland. (laughs) Exactly. TM. (laughs) Um, I showed up this conversation keeps going back to intention. One of my biggest intentions was to trust. Trust in myself, trust in the moment, trust in the universe, trust in everything that was unfolding, to extend trust to every person that I met, even when we did not speak the same language. And there was something about me showing up with that intention in my body that it really felt like even when I had no, there were times when I had no freaking idea where I was or how I was going to get back to my hotel, how I was going to eat, like all those things. But there was like a sense of like adventure that Mm. I could hold and real joy. And I felt like that was really palpable to like everybody who was around me. And now on the other side of that, I am so much more a better person. And I'm really reflecting on, you know, given how much racism and xenophobia and intolerance we are experiencing on a global level, like if we could just make it somehow, because it's an immense privilege to travel and I want to, I want to recognize that, right? But if we could bring down many of these barriers of privilege and access to actually be able to see how one another lives and to immerse ourselves in these places of like difference with full trust, right? We, I think as a society would be so much better off. We would be so much more developed in the direction of healing intergenerational trauma because it is so wild to show up to places where nothing is how you expect it. And yet, you know, that the people that you are meeting are you. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's my plug for Expedia.com. No. We better be getting paid for all these plugs we do doing over here. For free, for free. Okay, it's all for free right now, but where's the money? Show me the money. I'm just excited if we don't get canceled. I know. <laughs> I know. They're going to be like, they're total capitalists and they're just trying to sell us on their brain farts. <laughs> this show is also brought to you by the absolutely stunning and powerful tools of transformation that are created by Omala. Even the name Omala transports you to a place of flow and vitality. These are some of my favorite products ever. They have an amazing color-changing yoga mat that responds to your temperature and presence and reflects back your posture in real time. There's this incredible smelling skin balm candle that heats up to activate all the essential oils and vitamins that your skin has been craving. I mean, look, if I could live in a giant bath of this candle, I would 100% do it. They also have these journals that lead you into profound insight, and then you get to plant those journals to create a stunning flower garden. What? I mean, if that's not deep and inventive, I don't know what is. If you're someone who desires to live a luxurious flow of life and who believes in transformative wellness, then you have to check out Amala. 
Umala is giving my listeners an exclusive discount to treat yourself to something that is as special as you, boo. All you have to do is go to omala.com, that's O-M-A-L-A.com, and use the code DRSCOTT10 at checkout. And a portion of every purchase goes to an incredible charity. You got this. Sarah King, I would like to explore a little bit of uh, research on research with you. Are you open to that? Get meta with me, baby. Get meta. Yeah, yeah. So these are some studies we found on mindfulness, and I'd like us to just reflect on each of these studies just a little bit. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Let me put my my mindful hat on. Mm. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) Do you see that? Locked in. I locked in. That that focus is on point. (laughs) Wow. Wow. I remember this one time you and I did uppers and the focus was also on point like this. Laser I'm focus. Now, I'm now seeing it's the something similarity. something about methamphetamines that just like really get you in a mindful zone. No. <laughs> All right. This first study is called The Influence of Mindful Dishwashing on Well-Being, an experiential study, 2015. This study found that mindful dishwashing, by focusing on the sensory experience, could increase positive affect and reduce negative thoughts. Come wash my dishes. Someone paid money for that study to occur. Oh my goodness. It's like, we don't even have enough money to feed the freaking children of the earth, but yet we are funding this. Okay. This was funded most likely by parents who could then say to their kids, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. I'm going to teach you the art Ugh. of mindfulness and you're going to have mm. more delightful, positive affect and reduce negative thoughts if you mm. do the dishes. And the children just give all the shit about the peer-reviewed research now, don't they? <laughs> I mean, who cares about like YouTube or TikTok? They're like, show me what Science Direct has to say. Yeah. My niece is always like, hey, Uncle Scott, what's the peer review today? Oh my gosh, what is the Cochrane report? Um, (laughs) Yeah. They're looking on TikTok for that peer review. You know what I mean? Like, but I have so many questions. Um, Like oftentimes context is missing from what gets described in a lot of research studies. And it's like, it really depends on where you're washing those dang dishes. Like, are you washing oh. dishes? Because you don't have any other choice for how to make a living. And mm. so you are doing it to survive when you would much rather be like going to college to get your medical degree or something like that. Like, are you washing dishes um, for Beyonce on her world tour, okay? Because like homegirl got to like eat her like fresh vegan hootenannies or whatever. Like, are you washing dishes in the middle of a Siberian gulag? I don't know. Like, where are you washing those dishes at? Because I think what can be problematic, and I'm sure they were probably just doing this in, you know, the basement of some uh, research center. Uh, Harvard. Of, 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 <laughs> You forgot to say it. You said it. In, it's, no, it's I didn't in, say it. It's from it's Harvard. It's, <sighs> it's somewhere in Boston. It's at some place in Boston. I've never heard of it. Um, it must be like a quaint <laughs> little backwater university. But no, context is important. And I think that whereas there is truth 
that anything done mindfully can bring a greater sense of presence and ease and sure, shift your affect. There are also a lot of other factors that need to be considered around like why that person is involved in that activity in the first place and their identity and the community that it's occurring in and blah, 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 blah. Like I could go on, you know what I mean? Mm. So you ready for the next one? Maybe. We got a couple. Only if it's from Harvard. This one is from Harvard. It's called (laughs) drinking mindfully question mark. A pilot study examination examining the relationship between mindfulness and wine consumption, 2018. I think we can get involved in this one. The pilot study explored the connection between mindfulness and wine consumption, suggesting that mindful drinking could enhance the wine tasting experience and promote moderation. All I can say is that wine better tastes good if I'm going to take the time to slow down my thoughts and my breath to mm. consume it. If it's a two-buck chuck, I'm not going for it. I was just going to say that. Yeah, you know, I find that when I buy gas station wine or I make it in my toilet, it generally is far more flavorful when I'm connecting to the body and to the breath and you know, just mm. like really witnessing myself slurping the wine out of the toilet without judgment. Do you ever use one of those ladles? <laughs> yeah. Like a toilet totally. ladle? And I tend to kind of like drip it slowly. Oh, you, you, you put your head and, back and you really yeah. open up wide? Yeah. You know, but mindfully, mindfully. mindfully. And, and, and usually that produces a lot of moderation uh, because <laughs> it has run down my body instead of into my mouth. Yeah. Yeah. I can see yeah. that now. <laughs> Can mindful knitting improve the well-being of an older woman? That is actually the title. A qualitative study. Question mark. Question mark. This qualitative study suggested that mindful knitting can promote relaxation, reduce anxiety, and enhance well-being in older women. Again, context. What are they knitting? Mm. Who are they knitting for? Mm. And um, Mm. Mm. how sharp are the needles? Yeah, actually, I think that there probably is a lot of validity to like the comfort of the repetitive movements. And there is also always some form of satisfaction and enhancement of quality of life that comes from creativity, right? And just like harnessing the capacity to Mm. put something into the world. And I imagine that like maybe you might not be as mobile at a certain age. And so there really is something like beautiful to being able to like produce something that maybe you, you have better to stimulate that pre-sensory motor cortex. Ooh, I love Ooh. when you talk to my nerding Oh my. Um, the medulla oblongata is on fire. <laughs> Are you ready for two more? Oh, oh, okay. All right. Two yes. More. Ready. Ready. Mm-hmm. And I'll be serious this the, time. No. Please don't. Okay. Um, This one actually involves a dream you and I have shared. So I I selected this one. It is a collaborative dream of us. Mindfulness in the context of roller derby, done in 2017. The qualitative study found that mindfulness techniques were helpful for roller derby athletes in managing stress and staying present during competitions so that they could body chuck their opponents more effectively 
Yeah. I mean, you know, when I think about every time I strap on like a body Go on. Just pause there. Yeah. Metal spikes, right? Mm-hmm. With the intention of bludgeoning my opponent to death. On roller skates. Yes, on roller skates. I really have to make sure that um, that I'm staying with the breath and that I'm practicing a lot of compassion for myself because I actually have to witness them falling on the ground and crying and weeping and cringing and like, you know, bones breaking and things like that. It, you know, it really amplifies my stress levels when they when they cry out in pain. And, and I, I just have to really be able to modulate that response. Building tolerance for other people's pain is one of the quintessential elements of mindfulness. Yes. Well said. Yes. Mindfulness of BDSM, right? Is that what we're <laughs> talking about right now? I did not find any studies on <laughs> mindfulness and BDSM. You Are you look. willing to lead the team at Hadad to, to do such yes. a study? Yes. For $1,000 an hour, I'm willing to do many things. Oh, so, wow. Putting that out there. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, to our audience, I will give you Sarah's number after this. Exactly. And write it on, on my OnlyFans page. <laughs> Last Ooh. one, and then okay. we're going to switch to another element of the show. Okay. Uh, this one is is also very related to us, and it's actually okay. where we began. It's it, it's related to the first question. It's the beginning of our love story. Ew. Um, <laughs> this <laughs> this study says. Zen, in the art of lying, examining the links between mindfulness, lying, and deception detection, 2015. Okay. This qualitative study, they're never quantitative studies. What's up with that? Mm. This qualitative study found that mindfulness techniques were helpful for attending to signs of deception in others. Being more akin or attuned to when other people are lying. Okay. What do you think? About that? Mm. Well, you know, back in my CIA operative days. Oh my gosh! Yeah. <laughs> yes, little known fact about me. Um, I was the inspiration for that George Clooney movie where he was like hypnotizing goats and and causing them to like spontaneously combust with his mind. Oh, you mean uh, ER? No. <laughs> Wait, has he done anything since ER? No. I stopped paying no, attention. No, no, no. But we'll pretend that that was what I was talking about. But no, I could see how with the cultivation of a certain amount of uh, presence in one's body. Yeah. One of the things that I have noticed, maybe on a little bit more of a serious tip, is that with a regular mindfulness practice, I'm really able to... Um, stay in a much more relaxed state in my body as I'm moving through the world. And then that also causes me to like really be a little bit more attendant and sensitive to when people are tensing up around me. Mm. And I do know that at times when people are engaging in deception, that that can result in certain patterns inside of the body of like tension and tightness because it's almost like there's like this anticipatory like oh I don't want to be like found out kind of Mm -hmm, thing mm -hmm. going on and I think that that also combined with drinking a little bit of Dracula's blood every morning is of the essence in terms of being able to become a human lie detector I believe that is science (laughs) fact 
quantitative Fact. study. Moving Fact. on. Quantitative Fact. study. <laughs> this brings us <laughs> to I'm our so next. I'm glad that people are just getting like a window into our friendship right now, into all the malarkey. I, you know, I have to say, going back to what we were talking about, curiosity and playfulness, I have always experienced that our relationship was never trauma bonding. It was always playfulness and curiosity. From the first phone call yeah. we had where I was stuck in Australia during the pandemic. I remember and I that. I wrote you this email and I said, you're really cool. Can we have a conversation or something like that? Yeah. And you spelled cool K-E-W-L. And I was like a BFFs for life. BFFs for life. And we <laughs> talked for two hours straight. And I think you proposed to me at the end of those two hours. And then yeah. I think I proposed to your husband at the end of those two hours as well. Yes, we still remember that fondly every evening in bed. It is <laughs> very memorable. <laughs> and you were we like, are. I caught one glimpse of that ass and marry me. <laughs> mm. Mm. I think we'll shift to another section in our podcast called, Is That My Bio? Okay. Okay. This event that we're going to do is a game. Okay. And I'll explain the game. I will begin with reading a bio of Sarah, a bio that I have written myself for her, of her. She will have water in her mouth. And if she spits up that water, laughs, or asphyxiates during any (laughs) part of the game, she loses. Okay. And then we'll switch. Okay. And this game comes from both Sarah and I. I think it's fair to say we have obnoxious bios. They're long. They're full yeah. of a lot of letters and universities. And yes. we have frolicked in the academics and other things. And yeah. subsequently, we have these obnoxious bios. So a couple of years ago, Sarah and I started doing this thing that when we were teaching in events together we would slightly alter each other's bios just to get a little like nudge, nudge, wink, wink. A little sass. Yeah. A little sass in it. And we wouldn't do it to anyone else's bios, but just each other's. And so this has now escalated into (laughs) what is happening today. So Sarah, I'm going to ask you to lean back with your ladle and fill, fill some water in your mouth. Prepared. Okay. We good? Thumbs up? Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, she's already losing. Okay. Sarah's bio. Oh, and if I laugh, I also don't get a point. So <clears throat> it's on me too. Congresswoman King is the embodiment of reinvention. After being not so discreetly fired at the San Diego Aquarium for an incident that involved heavy petting with a starfish, she found herself asking, What if God was one of us? Just the same as one of us. And as unlikely as lightning striking thrice, a producer walked by at that very moment and immediately signed her to his Korean karaoke drag queen restaurant. And she was a sensation. The small crowds loved her. And more importantly, she began to love herself. After two years of singing mostly Janis Joplin, Alanis Morissette, and some salt and pepper to spice it up, she realized, <laughs> oh, we both lost a point, but you lost some points before that. Are you on the floor holding your knees? <laughs> oh, no. The water went through my nose. Oh. <laughs> it went up your nose? Oh, oh that's brilliant. Oh. Oh. Okay, take a mindful breath. 
Get the ladle out. Get some more water. Okay. Mm. You ready? Mm. And some salt and pepper to spice it up. She realized she wanted something more. So she got a dog and realized that wasn't it. So she got a husband and filmed a bunch of OnlyFans content and realized that wasn't it. So then she ran for office in the great state of Delaware and won by unanimous landslide. No, there was actually a landslide which affected voter turnout. Needless to say, she won and realized, yes, this is it. Politics is where I feel at home. (sighs) And she's settling her nervous system, draining the fluids out of her nasal Uh, cavity express my utmost uh embodied gratitude for nearly drowning in public um (laughs) Um, and the water is still dripping from my left nostril but i'm gonna you know keep it classy keep it cool keep it classy keep it cool do i get to go next you do get to go next i feel like Uh, mine is oh my god okay (laughs) well you know each shows our own personality of who we are to each other so I will take oh. some water and I'll give you a thumbs okay. up. Ready? <clears throat> mm-hmm. All right. Mm-hmm. Dr. Scott Lyons <laughs> was discovered at the age of five breastfeeding on a drunken wildebeest that he had captured with his bare hands while prowling the red light district of Switzerland. <laughs> he was immediately recognized for his raw, unbridled talent for giving dry, foreskin-chafing hand jobs with his armpits playing a Mongolian kazoo and narrating the vagina monologues without moving his lips with the skill of an 80-year-old ventriloquist all at the same time, which led him to be selected for the CIA's finest training program for doctors without ragged buttholes, I mean borders. He spends his... He spends his days listlessly rubbing his 99-cent store nipple clamps, pontificating the meaning of hardcore elephant-on-giraffe porn, and taking baths in what some have rumored to be the the used remnants of Theodore Roosevelt's toenail clippings, Bad Bunny's childhood tears, and Justin Timberlake's artisanal dick cheese. (laughs) When he grows up one day... He would love to be a tri- <laughs> a trilingual, cleft-toed, hardened war criminal with hoes in at least 30 different area codes and plans to change his name to Dr. Chauncey, <laughs> Dr. Chauncey McDiddle Fingers. <laughs> Is that it? <laughs> yeah, that was it. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> oh, the water really does go up the nose. And um, yeah. I am drinking oh. purified alkaline Himalayan sea salt <laughs> mineral-based water, and it fucking burns. Okay. One and one, right? I am ready when you are to do your second bio. Okay. Okay. Okay, so consume. Give me a thumbs up. Here we go. Dr. Sarah King has perfected the art of labial nostril breathing in through her hoo-hoo dilly and out through her chamber of secrets. Through this technique, she has truly revolutionized mindfulness, thus gracing the cover of Mindful Magazine. Twice! She has taught over 68 people the art of purifying negative energy into quantum crooked smiles. 
Let us go back into the history of time where Dr. Sarah King discovered said techniques through her previous career as a gymnast, where she often would swing her legs above and behind her head and would notice a wispy air coming out in the sound of a soft, squealy toot, not unsimilar to the low-crying tones of a baby seal being clubbed into a winter coat. How curious, she thought. Why does the air go out, but never in, at least not consciously in? So she declared right there and then that she would become a breathwork teacher. And that she has. Dr. King also serves on several international boards, including ExxonMobil, Chevron, Shell, and China Coal. <laughs> oh my God. I just feel like I have real sustainability cred with that bio now. And I'm just like really waiting for Greta Thunberg to like call me up and be like, what's up, homie? <laughs> I somewhat survived that one a little bit better than the last one, but only somewhat because I can still breathe through my nose and my mouth. Do you think that's what we would call resilience in the field? Absolutely. Um, it's also my remarkable adaptability and grit. Mm. What doesn't drown you makes you stronger. Precisely. Yeah. You ready? Hold on. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if you are. Okay. <laughs> Gird your loins. The con artist, formerly known as Dr. Scott Lyons, is here with us today while currently on the run from the same SWAT team that apprehended Jeffrey Epstein and his cronies. He attended medical school at Stormy Daniels Boot Camp for Satan-worshipping homewreckers and graduated at the top of his class. He managed to fully fund his education as a milker of gorilla balls for the San Diego Zoo with the nickname Miss Piggy all while graciously donating his spare time to the elderly at nursing homes nationwide, forcing them, I mean, treating them to daily showings of his play. The Golden Girls slay Amsterdam with their rabid pussies three times a day. He is internationally known for his role in instigating seven government coups using clowns adorned in nothing but spandex assless chaps, turd hats, and ball clamps, and is celebrated as well as feared on at least four continents for his incessant obsession with riding three lovers bareback style on the top of local McDonald's while pantomiming what he thinks Dolly Parton might look like if she were giving birth to a rhinoceros. Boom, <laughs> bitch. <laughs> is it hot in here or is it just me? <laughs> it's the fire. It's the comedic fire of desire that is burning through your veins. Oh. I wrote that this morning after a yoga class. So I was being very mindful. You know, someone should do a study between <laughs> mindful yoga practices and writing, truthfully, the most yeah. vicious, vile bio <laughs> I have ever heard in my life. And I'm so proud of you. You, know, you, you have really ascended website, to a new level of disgustingness. Mm. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. We did that. Wow, we did that. And, you know, we survived it. And yeah. I would like to think that it's years of meditation, mm -hmm. years of really astute focus to hone in my ability and your ability to stay present during all of that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if anything, all of the listeners today are going to leave with a powerful reminder of what enlightenment looks like. And they will know 
that it is possible for them to, to ascend to the highest realms of knowledge and wisdom like mm. we have. Nothing has ever been more true than science. Mm. 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 Mm-hmm. Now, you have actually been on the cover of Mindful Magazine, right? Yoga Journal. Yoga Journal. Yoga Journal. I remember being at a Whole Foods or an Air One of some sort and yeah. turning over in line and seeing a photo of you on the cover. Mm. And you know what I did? I picked up that magazine and I turned it around. <laughs> Oh, I thought you were going to say something loving, and you did. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, babe. (laughs) Are you ready, Dr. Sarah King, for our final segment of today? Mm. Is your nasal passage cleared enough for this next section? Yes. Ready. Beautiful. So I don't know if you know this, but we we have a write-in section for an advice column that people write into on the show. It's called Dear Midwestern Mom. We're going to take one of the invitations to support someone and give them, you know, the best advice we can with the little skills that we have. Okay, ready. Dear Midwestern Mom, after 20 years of being in a monogamous relationship, my spouse and I decided to open things up. It's been a long time since I've explored things, if you know what I mean. Where do I begin? Signed. Terry. Surat, do you want to go first or do you, would you like me to? <laughs> um, I feel like your Midwestern accent is like truly Bye. evoking something of the essence in this moment. Okay. And yeah. you should speak from the depths of your Midwestern soul to this woman. Oh, gosh. Yeah. That's, that sounds like a good idea. Don't you know? Oh, gosh. I do know. So, <laughs> but what I don't know, Terry, is um, when you say you haven't, you know, exploring things, and then you say, if you know what I mean, I don't know what you mean. I, I don't know. Have you not been exploring, like, have you gone to a museum? Have you gone to, like, a botanical garden? Where have you not explored, you know? And there's a lot of exploration out there. And I don't know if your partner was like a hermit at home and really didn't let you visit the Mall of America or other great landmarks we have in the United States. And so (laughs) I would say, I don't know what you mean, but I I do think it's a good idea just to get your foot out the door because goodness, that's a long time to be in a relationship is 20 years. I made it six months myself and (laughs) I couldn't imagine more. And, you know, if you're talking about the SEX, you know, a few things I would say is here's what I know about safety is that you take the saran wrap from, <laughs> you know, your casserole that is, as it's sitting in the fridge and you, you have them wrap it around and, you, you know, so it's real, real tight. And then you put a rubber band around it so you'll make sure you don't get pregnant. <laughs> That's my advice from a, a Midwestern mom. Sarah. Oh gosh, what can you help in in sharing with Terry today? I would tell Terry that there are at least 50 orify of the human body and each one of them has their qualities to be explored, poked, prodded. A flamethrower is an excellent implement to use when going on an exploration of orify. And so I say have at it until it looks like creme brulee. The end. Poor Terry, who is a real person who wrote it. 
Oh no! Oh no! <laughs> oh, mm, well, you know. Let's be real. It was probably my sister again. <laughs> my soul, you know, it really is like the deep energy of mindfulness inside of me. That is where all of my advice comes from. I think we really answered the question: Can you still practice mindfulness and be an asshole? I think we did some qualitative research today. I think we just embodied the wisdom of that (laughs) precisely. Well, my friends, that is all the time I'm willing to spend with Sarah King. So we will end the podcast here. (laughs) Sarah, thank you so much for being an incredible guest on the Mm. Gently Used Human. And (laughs) I, I could not think of a better Gently Used Human to be sharing this this time with. Mm. Thank you so much. And, and thank you everyone who listened to this very drab, boring episode on science <laughs> and mindfulness. I love you so much, Scott. And I just want to say that it's really like a very rare opportunity for me to, me to just like be able to fully show all the different sides of my personality and especially my sense of humor. And I absolutely feel as though like this is a moment of infamy that has been waiting to arise in my life, in my career. And I just want to thank you for giving me the space to just like freely express myself. So thank you for being all of you. Mm. Mm, Tasty. Thank you for listening to the Gently Used Human podcast with Dr. Scott Lyons and friends. Visit GentlyUsed.com for fun extras, including submitting your questions for advice from a Midwestern mom. And don't forget to spill the tea and gossip about the show with all your friends and frenemies. And you know what? Show us some love by giving us five stars and leaving a review in your favorite apps. This helps us connect with all the other gently used humans out there. Oh, and by the way, you look fierce today. Thank you.